You're listening to Were You Still Talking? Hey, welcome back. This is Were You Still Talking? And once again, actually not once again, for the first time in a long time, I am in my studio. I don't know why I wasn't in my studio for three years. Some weird thing was happening. But I am here. This is Joel, Joel Albrecht, and I'm here with Taylor Morden. And he is maybe one of the biggest celebrities I've had in the studio. He has done... Uh, He has a huge catalog of work, including The Last Blockbuster, which happens to be very near me. Um, What was the other one I just saw? Unstuffed, a -A Build-A-Bear story. I don't think that's out yet. We're going to find out. And my favorite that he's working on is a documentary on Lost. He's also done several other um, documentaries and, and other things. He's done other stuff, too. Really great to have you in the studio. It turns out he lives... Very close to me, which is so cool. I got to see a preview of Unstuffed, a build a bill story. You're going to love it. Um, yeah. Uh, so, hey, thanks for coming. Hey, Great thanks for you. having me. Great to have you here. Um, you know, I didn't, I don't know if this is giving anything away mm-hmm. for for the, uh, well, maybe enough people have seen it. Is Is there still a last blockbuster? Wow, just leading with the spoilers, leading <laughs> with the... Uh, <laughs> the the end of the film um <laughs> yes there is still a last blockbuster it is still thriving um it's in bend i was just there i went to bend for the bend film festival and i i feel contractually obligated to stop in the store whenever i'm in town of course right, uh, right. i have a lot of friends there because i was there for four years filming uh, but it's not often in my experience as a documentarian um that you can impact the thing you're documenting in that way the store was doing okay and sort of barely hanging on and then when our documentary came out and hit netflix and was this huge hit uh it became this tourist destination and so now they're making more money off of the t-shirts and the postcards and you know the movie posters and all the things that they sell uh than they ever were from renting dvds so that uh, is awesome that's awesome. So you you did, you saved the last blockbuster. Not only did you make the movie. But... Not just me, but there <laughs> <laughs> was a lot of people working really hard there. And it took a lot of people to make the movie. But uh, no, it does feel really cool to document something because it was interesting to me. You know, I was like, what, what's going on here? Why are people still renting DVDs? Um, and then have it actually help. Like maybe we didn't save the store, but we did help a little bit. We put them on the map in a new way. Um, and then now when I go back, almost everybody who's visiting the store, I, I eavesdrop on conversations. They're like, oh, yeah, right, from right. the movie and the documentary. And oh my gosh, it's Sandy. She's the main character of the doc. And she still works there. So people will see her working and they know her from the movie. So it's it's really exciting to sort of fly on the wall and also to have like a, a retail location for your documentary. Like we sell a lot of DVDs out of that store. Because it's a movie about DVDs. Oh, that was great. Um, I love it when people a- answer the question that I was thinking of asking. Great. <laughs> I had to. Uh, I, I assumed that the last blockbuster would be at the last blockbuster. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that Must was a huge been. moment. That was a goal for us. Uh, Zeke and I, my filmmaking partner on it. I remember one of our first meetings, we said, wouldn't it be great if when we finish this movie, the store is still open and you can rent our movie at blockbuster 
it'll be so meta. It'll be so full circle. And that did happen. And the moment that really sticks out to me, the thing that like makes me very happy and excited to this day is the time I went to Blockbuster three, four months after the movie had been out on DVD. And I found a copy of our movie in the previously viewed DVDs for $3.99. And I bought it. It still has the sticker on it. It's still in the plastic case. I, it's a previously viewed copy. Because that's most of my DVD collection came from previously viewed DVDs at Blockbuster. So it was very full circle to me to have that come out, have it be on the shelves, but then also have it be there long enough <laughs> to be in the <laughs> discount bin in the corner. <laughs> oh yeah, I know what that's right. That is exciting. That's cool. And by the way, there's a lot of stuff in that film. If you haven't seen it, um, there's a lot more than what I just spoiled. There's it's uh, there's nothing else. There's a, <laughs> that's the whole film. I was pretty surprised. I was because I didn't know that much about you know blockbuster. I assumed what so many people assume, and it's cool to get more of the story. Um, since we're on this subject. You just you just did it because you love video stores. Is was is that what gave you the I, idea? I did it because I had recently moved to Bend, Oregon. And this was 2015, 2016. Um, and I was a, a big Blockbuster customer. I I had like the monthly subscription pass, and I would rent a ton of movies. I did Blockbuster DVDs by mail when they were trying to compete with Netflix. I did all the things because I'm just like a huge movie fan. Um, and so I knew better than most people that Blockbuster had gone out of business because they, they all closed, right? 2014, right, right. Blockbuster's done. Um, and I had seen the signs, you know, the Blockbuster signs like in Washington, D.C. where I was living. They, they would keep them up, but the store was closed. But it cost so much money to take that big heavy sign down that they just leave it up. Or my favorite was the one, I think it's in Baltimore, where it was the Blockbuster sign, but they just painted over it and it said liquor. And it was a liquor store, <laughs> but it was clearly the, the shape of the, the Blockbuster sign. ticket. Oh, my God. Uh, so I saw one in Bend, one of these big signs, and I just assumed for a year I drove past this sign. I'm like, well, it's closed, but it's cute that they have the sign there. Um, and one day my curiosity got the better of me. I decided to stop by just to take a picture, look in the window, mm -hmm. you know, get up close to the sign. And the closer I got, the more I realized it was open and nothing had changed no one told them they never got the memo that blockbuster had gone out of business <laughs> and i walked in and i was you see it in the movie um we have doug benson the comedian come up and he walks in and the moment just taking it in that you're like walking through a time warp like it's it's the year 2000 in here there's just people browsing for dvds and renting and it smells the same and all this um and i had just finished my first feature documentary uh, the week before so I fancied myself a filmmaker. So that same visit, that very first time I walked in the store, I found the manager and said, would it be okay if I start filming here? I don't understand what's happening. Can I interview you? I need to find out how this is still here. And she said, yes. And then I filmed there off and on for four years. <laughs> and at the oh, time, they wow. weren't the last blockbuster. They were just one of 12. So Oh, there were still 12 when you started. Yeah. So we didn't know, you know, are we going to travel around to all 12 of these? I was just curious. My curiosity got the better of me because I couldn't understand, you know, this is a town that is kind of tech savvy, has fast internet. They have Netflix here. 
They have right. Amazon Prime. <laughs> they have all the things. It's a, yeah, it's a pretty well-to-do town. I mean, they're... Yeah. They're, yeah. And the other stores, they were in Texas and Alaska. The Alaska ones always made sense to me. They don't have high-speed internet there. If you want to watch a movie, a DVD is still the best way right. to do it. Right. Uh, that made sense. So for years, for the th- first three years, we assumed the Alaska stores would be the last one. So we would be chronicling, you know, the Oregon store closes and then we go to Alaska and, you know, they drop like dominoes. Um, but what ended up really happening is they closed so quickly, all of them, we didn't have a chance to get there. We would call the managers and they would say, I mean, yeah, you can come film here, but we close on Saturday. Oh. And it would be like in Texas and you know, I'm a low budget indie doc maker. I can't get to Texas by Saturday. So it just became about this one store and we never could have predicted they would actually be the last one on the planet that happened while we were doing it. So it's a little bit of right place, right time, but a lot of just my fascination with DVD rental culture. <laughs> but that's a lot of right place, right time. That's pretty amazing. I'm pretty sure that flicks and picks near us. I think it was still there after Blockbuster had closed. Was it? I think so. Because it was there when I moved here. I couldn't, I was trying to remember looking at your movie, how, how long ago they disappeared. I, I thought the Blockbuster went first. Yeah, we had. I, they must have disappeared when yeah. I was, I moved away from Eugene in 06. And they must have still been here then. And then when I came back, they were gone. But I've only been back for a couple of years. But Flicks and Picks, you know, I do a lot of interviews about Blockbuster. Oh, right. And they say, you know, where did you rent movies, blah, blah, blah. And I was a Blockbuster guy. I went to the Blockbuster on 18th, you know, by the Safeway. Mm -hmm. Uh, I lived a couple blocks from there. But I would do this thing where you go to Blockbuster for the new releases, right? They have 500 copies of The Matrix. You're always going to be able to get The Matrix at Blockbuster. But they don't have any of the cool, indie, weird movies. I would always go to Blockbuster and then also go to Flicks and Picks. Right. Because that was the good store. <laughs> but they only had one copy of The Matrix and it was never in. So you had to do both if you wanted, you know, the mainstream movie and then also the trauma movie or the weird indie, you know, offbeat. And they were categorized so cool. They'd have like a director's section and then they would. But I remember Flicks and Picks being very Im- intimidating because the people who worked there uh, thought they were so cool and knew everything about movies. And I was this punk teenage kid who also liked the blockbuster movies. It wasn't into, I wasn't a cinephile. I was just a, a punk kid, but they were all Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Everyone who <laughs> worked there was just, Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, it, it's true. I, re- I do remember that. It was like, you're looking for what? Right. You don't want to watch that film. Come on. Right. And then <laughs> they would turn you on to some weird thing and you take that home and be like, yep, you were right. I did want to watch this weird thing. Yeah, this weird thing was good. Yeah. This, is, this is good. So you watch a lot of movies, it sounds like. I do. You do. <laughs> <laughs> I love movies. And um, also, how, how did you connect to so many people? Uh, you interview a lot of people, um, a lot of them celebrities. Mm-hmm. A lot of them, um, actually, my first question is, what's Steve Smith like? Big fan. Kevin Smith? Kevin Smith. Oh, my God. I said Steve Smith, the drummer. Steve Kevin Smith. Smith. I'm I a do fan not of know. Steve Smith, too. <laughs> I do not know who Steve Smith is or what he's like. Um, he was a drummer for Journey. Drummer for Journey. Yeah. Oh, man. I love Journey. They're fascinating. Um, anyway, Steve Smith, Steve Perry, Cherry Pop and Daddies, Eugene. Anyway, uh, back on track. <laughs> Kevin circle. Smith. All right, Kevin Smith is great. He's oh everything you'd God. want him to be. Um, he's 
generous with his time. He's also a huge stoner and flaky, and we had to fly to L.A. three times, I think, to actually land the interview because he would say he's going to be there Friday at noon, and Friday at noon rolls around, and no Kevin Smith. But when he's there, he's awesome. He's fantastic. Oh, that's great. And I kind of that's kind of good to hear because, in a way, I've, I've always thought um, with – Kevin Smith and and people like him. How do they smoke that much weed and still get stuff done? And so maybe they don't they, always. They don't they, always. They don't always. Or they run diet. on their own sort of schedule. And he kind of runs own his plot. own little empire there. So he's not mm-hmm. too beholden to being at any particular place at any particular time. Right. So I think it, it works out. Um, and most of, he does a lot of podcasting, and most of them he can do high. Like, he is why no. I, he's actually why I'm podcasting. Oh wow! Because yeah, it it didn't. He said, "Oh, anyone can do. You know, you just need a microphone, and anyone can do this." And he was on somebody somebody else's very famous podcast, and uh, so I was like, "Oh, I have microphones. I have a whole little studio." I, there you go. Yeah. What? And uh, he was wrong. It helps to be Kevin Smith. It, oh, it definitely. <laughs> anyone can, I mean, yes, you can do, do it. it. Yeah. No one's going to listen to it. Hey, maybe now. I hey. mean, for now that I'm that I've got uh, famous people on the show. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, but actually, my my real question was, how were you able to connect to so many people? Do you have um, like uh, someone who helps you do that, or are you just really good at cold calling? Are you great with agents and managers? How? Um, I am really good at uh, the cold call, the cold email, the cold DM. Uh. I don't love dealing with agents and managers because there's usually, because we don't have a lot of money, so there's nothing in it for them. Right. You oh, know, 10% yeah. 10% of nothing is nothing. Still, so still. why would they pass the message along to their client when there's no benefit, you know? And it's, I'm literally asking them to send one email or a text. Still, a lot of agents, managers, I know for a fact they don't pass it along because eventually we do get in touch with the person. And they say, oh, my agent never told me right. that you wanted to talk about Blockbuster Video. I'm like, yeah, why would they? But they told me you said no. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so that, oh, that it's, hurts. It's roundabout. That, and that yeah. happens a lot. And I've done enough of these now to know the ins and outs. And I tend not to take no for an answer until I hear it from the person. And that's good and bad. It's not the best way I'm very persistent uh but yeah it's it's a lot of work and you know you see one of my movies and you're like oh there's like five celebrities in this movie that's amazing how did he do that at least we reached out to 500 yeah see but that's and we worked hard and uh-huh. five you know one percent says okay sure i'll talk about blockbuster video or i'll talk about whatever ska music or lost like you got to and there's spreadsheets involved and how, when, when did we last contact this person by which means because there's too many people to keep track of. And I can't remember the last time we reached out to Kevin Smith. What did he say? Because you got to track it all and it's boring and annoying. But yeah, it's persistence and it's a numbers game, which is hard in the documentary world because for some topics, there aren't big numbers of experts or people who would even have anything to say about a topic. We're lucky with Blockbuster Video I can't think of anyone who hasn't been to a Blockbuster video. So it was easier to be, you know. Yeah, and it's a really intriguing story. When, it, when If you do get a hold of them, you tell them what you want to talk about. That, that, that sounds, especially someone uh, like Kevin Smith, 
not Steve Smith. Right. <laughs> well, he had worked at a video store. Because, like our first oh, okay. list was people who had worked at video stores. Quentin Tarantino was on that list. Mm-hmm. We never, we never got in touch directly. So I don't know. We heard no from other people. Um, but yeah, a lot of people we Googled, oh, they had worked at a video store. They'd be great for this. And then persistence, 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 and try, try, try. And some people just don't want to be in documentaries and some people want sure. money and I don't have money. So it's a whole thing. And, oh, so, so some people do want money. I kind of wondered about that too. Um, and I, because I think people are starting to ask for money to be on podcasts Yep. and it's like, no. No. Yeah, well, they think, no. you know, everybody's Joe Rogan or everybody's Kevin Smith and they've got the budget. Right. Um, they do. And that was, you know, if there's a downside to having a, a hit documentary on Netflix, now everyone thinks I have money. Uh, spoiler alert, I don't. <laughs> That's just not how it works in this business. They pay bottom dollar for indie documentaries. Um, but you have to walk that line of, I have to use that to try to book the next interview. Like, oh, my last one was right. popular. You want to be in this because it could be popular. And they'll, they'll say, great, if it's popular, how much money you got? Oh. And it's like a catch-22 <laughs> of, yeah, yeah. Do you even want to tell people about the last thing or the next thing or who you are? Or do you just want to say, hey, we're doing a documentary that you would be perfect for and it'll only take a half hour of your time and we'll make it easy on you and, and just show up? It's a case-by-case thing. You never know mm-hmm. what's going to work. And it's like really, I said, 99% of the time, it doesn't work. So, But that's great that you push for that 1%. I mean, I'm, I'm really shy about contacting people, you know, unless, unless I'm at their preview and they're like standing there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that is the very best way but, to get someone to do an interview is yeah. face-to-face. Right. Or to say, hi, yeah. we've met. Will you do an interview for this thing? And that's... The, the biggest thing on things like, the, like we're doing this one about Lost right now, um, it's when you finish one interview with somebody who worked on the show or something. At the end of that, you've had a good time. You've been chatting for an hour. Hey, who else do you know that might want to chat about Lost? And then they open up their phone, has everybody's phone number, so you get the direct contact. You get in touch with one or two more people, and then those people know one or two more people. And so it does tend to snowball. You know, you pick up momentum as you go. Uh, best example of that was when I did the one about ska music. We started with just the bands we knew. Because mm-hmm. I had yeah. played in ska bands and we just went, well, okay, well, we know like four people. We know someone from Fishbone. We know someone from this band and this band. And we went and interviewed them. And as we're wrapping up, who are your friends in this industry? And every community is tighter knit than you think it is. If it's about a specific thing. So I, you find that people know each other. Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's definitely true. I mean, did you ever hear the Crazy Eights? We are you old enough to ever have heard? It sounds familiar. They were a great great band, a ska band from the eighties. I think they were done by the nineties. Okay. Anyway, they're from Portland, so I thought you might have heard of them. That's probably yeah. why I've heard the name. I don't know that I've heard the music. Yeah. You do you do a documentary about a thing, and everybody has that. Everybody goes, right. hey, have you heard of this band? Right. And, but it's usually not local. It's somebody from, you know, a suburban town in Iowa. And they're like, have you heard of the, you know, whatever made up ska band name I could come up with right now? <laughs> I get that when I say I'm a drummer, which I don't say as much anymore. But oh, have you heard of Steve Smith? Yeah. 
Exactly. Or do you know? <laughs> do you know Dave It's Grohl? more like, do you, yeah. Yeah. Do you know him? Uh, no. Yeah, Especially is, if you say you, you, you lived in LA, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, I lived in LA. I was a drummer. Really? <laughs> now, you know Ringo? You know Nirvana, right? Yeah, you know Ringo. <laughs> you get that. I. <laughs> yeah. Uh the techs, that's who knows everybody, the people who tech those shows. I, I actually yeah. fly with those guys on Flight Sim, and oh, cool. they like know everybody. I worked for a long time in concert production for um, Dan Steinberg, who used to run Square Peg and uh, Steinberg Presents, and he did all the concerts mm -hmm. with Thrasher back in the day in Eugene and Portland. And working in concert production is how you, you meet all the people. I would, oh, yeah. I would be like the agent, yeah. uh, the promoter rep or... Sometimes just a runner or something. Mm -hmm. You're going and getting water for the Indigo Girls or whoever. And that's, I met way more musicians doing that than I ever did playing in bands because they don't want to talk to the open band, but they do want to talk to the guy who goes and buys the sandwiches. Oh, yeah, that's true. Because they want true. sandwiches. Or the guy, when you're the promoter rep, you're the one who pays everyone at the end of the night. So that's, you want to be that guy. I had a great conversation with Luke Skywalker. I've, to I've told this before, but nobody listens to more than one of these podcasts. Uh, <laughs> he was working on a, a cartoon that I was um, PA for. So I was the one getting the contract signed. There you go. So, um, and he like took over the green room just because it's a very entertaining dude and mm -hmm. uh, told stories. And I, you know, I was sitting around listening to him. Uh, like over a year later, there's another cartoon di different production company different cartoon and i'm doing that one and he's a guest star in it and he i walk in the room he's like hey joel wow i was totally blown away I mean, this amazing. guy means a lot of people yeah, you know, yeah. blew my mind i'm sure he wouldn't remember that if he heard the story but, no, that's a good story though but he was uh yeah like it, was, it. it was really cool listen, uh, catching him like that. So did you, uh, there was one of the, one of the uh, actors from Lost got in some kind of incident in Bend. Have you mm -hmm. been able to contact, contact uh, Well, he him? lives in Bend. He does um, live in Bend. See, I was confused about that. He occasionally that. gets into incidents mm -hmm. many places, but um, yeah, the main guy from Lost, Matthew Fox, lives in Bend um, part-time. He used to live in Bend full-time, but he's back mm -hmm. acting now and doing some TV show. And we've been trying to get in touch. That's one of those persistence things. And I don't know when this airs, but as of now, we have not been in touch. Um, but he lives in Bend, and I know people in Bend. I know yeah, a lot of people thought, in Bend. So right. that's like a weird, you know, how do we get this guy to be in this movie? And you know, how do we get him for an interview? And he's right there. And I know people that know him kind of, and it's, like, why is that harder than a Kevin Smith? Shouldn't be, but it is. Um, so we had an article in the local, the Bend Weekly Paper mm -hmm. about this documentary. And I had a friend of mine was working on it. And he put in like a call to action for Matthew Fox. Like, oh, if, if awesome. you see this, uh -huh. you know, the uh -huh. island still needs you. Uh, and then I made sure <laughs> that a copy was delivered to his house in Bend. Because I know people who know where that is. Uh-huh. Uh, it didn't work, I guess. I don't know. I haven't heard from him. Oh, Should have well. put my phone number in there. Oh, well. But you'll see. I mean, listen to this in a year, and when our documentary comes out, if Matthew Fox is in it, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> but you did get a lot of uh, a lot of the cast to mm -hmm. be in it. Yeah, we're uh, getting a lot of the cast. It, we're it, right in the middle of it, so it's, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know who we've announced and who we haven't, but we have a lot of the, the cast in the doc. Well, I've just seen pictures Anyone you've uh, seen a picture I've, of, we've announced. Yeah. 
<laughs> I would assume so. Um, in my opinion, one of the best actors in the in the movie you got, which is uh, the guy who plays Ben, Michael Emerson. Michael yeah. Emerson, fan. I I haven't um, I haven't really watched much else he's been in. They haven't been shows that I was that attracted to. But sure. he was, you know, he was so good at not being good mm -hmm. and pretending he was. Oh yeah, <laughs> just genius at that. Yeah, he elevated that show to a whole different level when they brought him in he he's really, not in yeah. the first season yeah uh but then to have a character come in and just sort of take over like that and be such a focal point and he was so great in it and he was so different than everyone else it, his he's like this new york guy and he's just like uppity you know straight-laced human mm -hmm. and all these other people are like i don't know been on an island for <laughs> Six months. Well, most of them lived in Hawaii, the actual actors. So it became this crossover thing, but he was flying in from New York and just other than, which is very interesting because his character is other than. So that right. was a great, great, right. great conversation with him. Hopefully most of it makes it into the doc and everybody will love it. Yeah, I hope so. I'm really looking forward to that one. How did you, where did you start? Documentary filmmaking. <laughs> did you did you think did you always want to make documentary films? Have you wanted to do no other kind of films? I, I don't really no? love documentaries. You don't, uh, <laughs> which people don't. I got the truth. People don't like that. Um, no, but I love it's hard work. Oh yeah, it's. <laughs> I mean, any filmmaking is hard work. Yes. But you know, I have friends that have been working for ten years yes. on what's going to be an amazing documentary. But yeah, it's. Yeah. It's hard. It's very hard. And I never set out to be a documentarian because I'm not drawn to those. I mean, there are important documentaries out there that mm -hmm. do the world a service, that expose important issues and that, you know, open people's minds to the dangers of this or the beauty of this. Those are great. Those win Oscars. I don't really watch those. <laughs> and I certainly don't make those. I make the documentary you put on because that other documentary was too heavy and you need to lighten up. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of always been my, my in, that sort of pop culture, comedy, doc, fun, mm -hmm. not too heavy. You know, we talk about real stuff, but in a way that's very digestible. They're 90 minutes, you can put them on and usually laugh a few times and feel okay about if you like the thing that the doc is about, I'm going to make you feel good about liking the thing. That's sort of, I make them cause I like them. Um, but I got into it through music. I played music for 20 something years and, um, at a certain point was making music videos for bands I was in cause I had the, the technical know-how video editing and whatnot. Um, and then you make a music video for your friend's band. And then somebody from the friend's band works at a company that needs a commercial and they've seen you hold a camera. So then you start doing commercials <laughs> and you're in Washington, DC. And I was a full-time flash animator. If you remember when flash ruled the internet. Oh my God. Yeah. When you, when you first said it, I was like, what you were doing special effects, but now no, the, yes. flash, the, flash, the intros on the, websites that you couldn't skip, um, right. that everyone hated. I made those. <laughs> And in 2009, Apple decided they weren't going to support Flash on any of their devices, and Flash just died. It just wasn't on the internet anymore. 
Wasn't that wasn't that some kind of hole in it? Um, it was a, a security uh, thing, but uh, I think yeah. there might be more to it than that. Because oh, well, it was owned it by Macromedia, which was bought by Adobe, and it was a whole behind the scenes uh, thing. Because it's not like you can't patch a security leak, right? So they, I think somebody at Apple was like, "We have a different thing that's going to be the future of the internet. Let's not support their thing. It will die, oh, right? And we'll weed out the competition." Anyways, it worked. I was out of a job. Uh, I just started doing video stuff, and um, I looked around, and it turns out you can make a pretty good living shooting weddings and shooting real estate. And so I spent a couple years <laughs> shooting weddings and shooting real estate uh, when Flash died. And so I had that sort of skill set. When we left D.C. and moved back to Eugene, that's or Bend, actually, all I knew was do weddings, do real estate, commercials, music videos. Great. Bend is a small town. There's not a huge market for any of those things. And there were already like five companies because it's a creative town that had cornered the markets on, you know, there's already five real estate companies and five wedding companies and five commercial companies. Right. And I'm the new guy coming in. And I tried to get meetings with all of those companies and tried to get hired and nobody wanted to talk to the outsider guy from DC and nobody... Nobody took those meetings. Um, it felt like nobody wanted. Ben doesn't like a lot of people to move there. It's one of those. We, it's, we yeah. have a cool town and you don't get to come here. You can visit, but you know. Eugene is always up in the air with that. Yeah. They're always like half of the town is, we don't want anyone moving here. We don't want this to grow. Right. And then the uh, like half of the government here, we want to be huge. Right. We want to be the next tech, yeah. you know, tech town. And I'm always going, mm -hmm. you do not. Yeah. You never want to be that. Yeah. <laughs> You'll hate it anyway. And Bend was like that. And so all these people who were doing what I knew how to do didn't want to hire me. And my skill set, when I really sat down and thought about it, every single one of those things, except the music videos, they are documentaries. You know, you make a five-minute wedding film, it's a documentary of that wedding. Oh, yeah. You make a real estate yeah. thing, it's a documentary of that property or whatever. And so I owned some cameras, I owned some gear, and I asked my wife, I, you know, I don't know if I can get a job in this town besides at Best Buy or wherever and just a job, but I think I could make documentaries. Is it okay if I try to make a documentary and, you know, we kind of live off of your income for a while because it doesn't pay anything unless right. the movie gets finished and gets released then it pays something and she said uh yeah you can have one year we looked at i had a lot of savings too because weddings pay really well so i was, looked at my savings mm -hmm. we looked at you know the whole picture and we're like yeah about a year i can do it for one year and if it doesn't make any money you got to get a real job and that was nine years ago and i haven't gotten a real job that is awesome it's just uh, that's a great story to hear. My, I think my camera is falling down. Cool. Yeah. Oh well. Cameras I'll just are overrated. Keep it pinned on you. Yes, they are. Nobody watches. It's mostly audio. Nobody watches the you know the I video know. much. People I should get into podcasts. People on the you should do a podcast. People on the YouTube still listen to it. They don't. They don't watch it. You know. Right. Yeah. I listen to stuff on. on YouTube, and it's yeah. just on like. The corner of the screen over here. Yeah. And it's not. Even the people with huge, they have huge podcasts and they've done a ton. I mean, they have, I, I have some made up lighting in this room 
they have, you know, a studio, studio sure. lighting, and mm-hmm. it looks amazing. And I'm always like, wow, no one's going to watch this. <laughs> well, they watch the clips, I guess. They watch yeah, the Yeah, that's the thing, the social media clips, clips your TikToks, your, yeah. your Instagram reels, all that has to come from something. Right. So they film it or they Zoom film it and then they can chop it up for that. And that's, if I was starting now, that's be, that'd be where I was making my money is editing social clips out of longer form stuff because I think that's, that's a that's big the one. whole internet that's now. yeah if i i mean if i could if i had to hire somebody well if i <laughs> if the podcast made money there you go that's the first thing i would hire was it someone who could edit and yeah. you know start editing things and start pulling stuff out because and that leads actually into my next question because i personally i told you i do this live people have who've seen the podcast know it's it's done as if it was live and uh it's not because I don't want to edit it. It's just that I really don't like editing. I've done audio editing where you're going through and you're taking the ums out everywhere, mm-hmm. and which I'm sure you do for your films. All the time. It drives me batty. A friend of mine, he's, he make, he's an audio engineer and a, and a cinematographer and, and that. And he does a lot of voiceover stuff as a producer. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's tons of his time is it just... Anyway, so... Uh, is there a part like is editing? Do you like editing, the, or I have a love hate relationship okay. with editing. Okay. Um, I like editing in documentaries. Editing is the whole thing, right? Right. Because you go out and you gather one hundred, two hundred, three hundred hours worth of footage, and then you get home and you could tell any number of stories. You know, there you have the the content there to shape whatever you want um and i'm saying these ums just so you'll have something to cut out later oh thanks um <laughs> so but just cut those out in your mind audience thanks right <laughs> but no editing is where all the power is but it's also can be very tedious and very time consuming my wife knows that when it's editing time on one of these movies she may not see me for three months like i'll be in a room the mm-hmm. size of this with a computer and from my morning cup of coffee until 2 or 3 a.m. that night, I'm just clicking buttons and making stuff happen. Right. And that's not a real good way to live, but I have that sort of hyper-focused brain mentality where I can do one thing and I can put a lot of energy into it, but if I get distracted, I'm going to go do 10 other things. So hmm. I really have to sit and do do the thing. Um, but I'm pretty fast at editing, and I do sometimes freelance edit for other people. Mm-hmm. I enjoy that more. Because oh, that's interesting. It's usually it's... faster. Right. The, you know, commercials, things like that. But also, it's more interesting because I haven't already seen all the footage. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Look at what you did. And, oh, wouldn't it be neat to put this next to that? And what about a sound effect here and stuff like that? You have a lot of power as an editor, and I think it's an underrated aspect of filmmaking. A lot of people undervalue it. You know, you're like, who's the director? Who's the writer? Who's the producer of this thing? But in the documentary world, it's who's the editor? That's who made the film. That's true, and I, a lot of edi- a lot of act of, of directors will say the same thing. It's like the the editor makes or breaks this film, right? Mm-hmm. And because editor and sound design is what can turn a just a not very good film into a really a gem i mean i yeah i've talked to some editors who who on big films where they uh 
they talk about what they get, you know, and they, they, they just get sometimes a lot of junk. Yeah. <laughs> they, they have to go through it all and, and cut it down and make it work. And so it's amazing. But it seems like you have to have that, um, that attitude, that tenacity to keep it going. And um, so do you, I just said, um, now I'm really conscious of all my ends and ums and I, I could, if I, if I do the Kevin Smith trick, he turns into Fox, you see. Mm, yeah. Instead of saying, um, he says, well, fuck. <laughs> anyway, we, uh, um, I didn't where was I? Oh, this. do you, no, you can't. Oh, okay. Don't fucking swear, man. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I, you, I, you can use all the language. I, Great. I, yeah, the whole. I'll start now. <laughs> I should tell people, not that I, I don't go out of my I way to ask. do it or anything. Yeah. Some people ask and uh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure, sure you can. Um, where was I? Oh, so <laughs> are you writing it in the editing room or do you do some writing, you know, as you're going or. Right. That's, yeah. that's a great question in the doc world because I've seen it happen every combination of those two ways. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times you'll write an outline, which is how you know which questions to ask your interviewees to get the sound bites you need to tell that particular story. But it always goes off the rails. It always goes in directions you weren't expecting. So that outline doesn't always hold up when you go to edit. And so you're rewriting. And sometimes I work with writers who are helping structure the story. Or if we have a narrator, sometimes we have a narrator. Somebody mm -hmm. has to write what they're going to say. And there's a lot of research involved because we got to get the facts right. And you can't just say something happened in 1992 if it happened in 1993 because the internet will destroy you. So writing on a doc happens throughout usually, but you do try to go in with something written, um, whether it's a one-page outline or a 10-page outline. Uh, the Build-A-Bear one, we rewrote the outline a bunch of times because it was a tighter timeline. So we did a lot more oh, okay. writing the story. Basically, we didn't film a bunch of stuff that's not in the movie. We filmed what's in the movie because it had to be done basically in a year because it was for their 25th anniversary, which happened. So <laughs> <laughs> they, they wanted it done. And so we wrote an outline and they said, that's great, but change this, this, and this. And we rewrote it. We rewrote it until everybody was happy. And then we just shot that. Oh, and, that's, and we didn't let okay. it go off the rail. I mean, it probably wouldn't have. It's the history of teddy bears. The beauty of things that have happened in the past is it's finite and you know what happened. You know, I'm oh, not, right. It's not going to take a weird turn where in 1982, teddy bears take over Manhattan. I know that didn't happen. I can Google it. But you, so, you should have put it in there. You should, but so it didn't happen. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like if it's yeah. a historical thing, yeah, yeah. like Blockbuster was happening in real time, we didn't know if they were going to stay open or close or be the last one or not be the last one, you can't write that. You have to wait and see what happens in real life. But on, you know, the history of Build-A-Bear Workshop, I mean, I, it'll change now. What happens this week, I don't know. Right. But everything else, they gave me a like a 30-page document that a historian had written. Here's everything that's happened. Pick out what goes in a movie. And I read it. And I fact-checked it because you never know if they're giving me the real story. But 
then you write it down and then you go make that movie. So it didn't really change. So that one was written in advance. Mm -hmm. And then we edited to that document to fit what we had shot to that written story. Uh, Blockbuster was written in advance. I had my partner was, he's a professional screenwriter in Hollywood. So he did all the writing and he wrote an outline and then we shot stuff and it changed and it kept changing throughout. So we'd rewrite and pivot and oh, okay, mm -hmm. well now this has happened. So we got to change. So we were trying to mirror what was happening now with the store, with the history of the store or the history of the franchise. And that only works if it works. Right. <laughs> you know, right. Because we can't control what's happening now. So that one was being rewritten until the day we handed in the final file. We're tweaking, oh, maybe, maybe this changes to this. And then some of them, like the ska, the history of ska music in the 90s, I knew what that was. My producer on that also had played in a band with me. We knew what happened. We lived it. So we didn't write anything down. We just, <laughs> just went in going like, we're going to tell this story. We think we know how it goes. And it kind of went that way. So that one was really written in the edit. Mm -hmm. so we just gathered a, giant, just, a boatload of footage and then pieced it together. That's really interesting that you've done it uh, both ways. Mm -hmm. And so build it. We let's back up a little bit. Build a Bear was the first documentary that someone hired you to do. Yes, right. Because I know you said that in the in the uh, preview that I saw. Mm -hmm. And um, having a year to do a documentary also seems really, really fast. It did is. It, yeah, that seems like amazingly fast. Did it? Did they have the the um, was there enough budget to make that happen faster or was yeah. it just never sleeping or like, did you? Well, no, it was, it was in the planning. It was in the planning. Right. So right. sometimes docs take a long time because there's no money and you're just doing it when you can do it and you have a day job or whatever. Sometimes they take a long time because something is happening in real, you know, if you're documenting the the fall of Bitcoin, well, you got to wait and see what happens. Oh, right. And you can't control yeah. when something's going to happen or make the news. Or sometimes you have to reopen. I know a lot of documentarians who make their whole movie and then something happens and they got to go back and it's already finished, but they open up the file and they redo it because it changed. So um, with Build-A-Bear, like I said, they came to me with this history and they're like, it's historical. Mm -hmm. yeah, we're still open, but that's not the story. The story is where we came from and why teddy bears are cool. Uh, please write a treatment for that. But because we wrote it in advance and didn't film extra stuff, then the editing could be faster because I knew exactly what the story was supposed to be from the beginning. Uh, so, And we weren't waiting for anything to happen. So we just go film. these. There's four key interviews with people who worked at Build-A-Bear and I said, well, you say the things from the outline. Oh, okay. And then we cut it wow, in. Wow, that helps. Well, I didn't tell them what to say, but I asked the questions that lead to the answers that are in the outline. Uh -huh. You know, and we didn't talk about, you know, there's huge gaps. If you watch the movie, you know, there's the origin in 1997. And then I think the next thing we talk about is in 2004. Oh, yeah. It's a bit of... And that was intentional <laughs> because... Jump. Well, because it's a 90-minute movie. Right. And... You know, it is very cool how fast they grew and how it 
did, but we just montaged that. And we said, in this year, they had this many stores and then this many stores and this many stores. And of course, there's little stories that we could have told in there that would have stretched it out and made it longer. But in the writing process, we had to whittle it down from 30 pages to six pages. And sometimes you skip a year. But then, you know, if I had all the time in the world to tell all the story, I would have filmed all of that and then in the edit, decided which were the good stories. Oh, but instead, yeah, okay. we decided in advance, so it took less time because we didn't waste time filming. Not waste time, but we didn't shoot hours and hours of footage that we didn't need. Mm-hmm. We shot the movie, which is more like how a narrative film is made. You write a script, you shoot the movie. Right, right. You don't shoot 10, hour, you know, 10 times that and then whittle it down later unless you're... Scorsese, but he doesn't whittle it down. He just gives you a four-hour movie. He just gives you a four-hour movie, but he's, I think he shoots like 60. Well, there you go. Some insane, some insane amount. That's too much. Uh, it, it is. It really is. I think I have to f- fix something here. This, okay, keep, yep. this keeps falling. It's not that important. It's, it's mostly on you. Okay. Like you got a cool Dutch angle there, though. I, I think do. I should. It's Can like I, what the. I want to be crooked it's too. It's an old. It's an old Batman movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh jeez. Uh, I'm. I'm just gonna make a little note here in case I decide to do some editing. There we go. Great. So yeah, I will. I might edit that out. I might not. That's fine. I should fix it though, because it's ridiculous. <laughs> I, oh, I went better. the wrong way. That's better. Yeah, that's great. It's, I'm backwards. Ah, there we go. Yeah, I think I'll have to edit. No uh, problems. I'm going to drink of water. I've just been drinking tea this whole time. <sighs> How's it going? Is this, is this what you know? I tend to talk too much. but No, I, no, you can't. In my opinion... As a podcaster, this is just my opinion. I'm here just to shut up. Like, like you know, you have the same. I, yeah, I've thing. done your job. Yeah, you've done this, and it's even more so with you, where you really you're just asking a question and letting them talk. Yeah. But even uh, I think I prefer that in a podcast. That's what cool. I'm looking for. Um, so I love it. That was one of the reasons I asked you after seeing you answer questions. Yeah, oh, I was like, I can I can talk. That, yeah, <laughs> but it's great. Cool. It's great. It's it's. Um, it's better than just, oh, yeah, I did that. and Yeah, I did that. No. Happy to help. Yeah, I met him. Yeah, whatever. Well, that's not a good story. I try <laughs> it's to, It's not you know, a good story. I work in anecdotes and yeah. sound bites, and I know that's probably what you need. So there's a story. If there's a story behind it, I'll try to work it in. And if there's not, I'll just ramble until you cut me off. <laughs> I'll try not to cut you off. Oh, you should. This <laughs> we, uh, what was it? Oh, so have you thought... About, I mean, it sounds like you did, you've done a lot of documentaries because you're passionate about these um, different things or mm-hmm. you found them interesting. Uh, do you also want to do dramatic films? Have you thought about doing that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, we shot a mm-hmm. horror movie last month <laughs> because I have always wanted to do, I've done a lot of short films uh-huh. uh, for film festivals and things. I've found, uh, here's a fun life hack for the indie filmmakers out there. If you can make your short films cheap enough and then meet people at film festivals you want to go to so you could submit directly and not pay the submission fees then it's cheaper to make a film every year than to pay to go to film festivals so we make 
I try to make a film as often as I can so that I can submit to film festivals so that I don't have to pay $300 for a pass to that film festival, <laughs> which is a weird roundabout way to go mingle with filmmakers. But uh, I, I love making short genius. films. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a weird hack. but it's good hack. But, I, you know, I own cameras and I own lights and keep microphones, so it's not that expensive get your friends together for a weekend and shoot a little film. Uh, and I've done a bunch of those and I love narrative filmmaking as much as documentaries. I mean, they're different. They're totally different things, mm -hmm. but some of the skill sets transfer, you know, editing, you right. edit both and, and sound mixing and all these things apply to both. So it's fun to be a little bit more creative and a little bit more in control. Cause in documentaries you have no control a lot of the time. Um, so yeah, I have always wanted to make, do, 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 always wanted to make scripted features and a friend of mine brought a script to me about a year ago and said, Hey, you want to make this? We think we can pull it off here in Eugene and we spent a year planning and then last month we shot it. Uh, we're not quite done. There's still one more day of filming in a couple of weeks, but it's going to be a weird indie horror comedy movie based on the original book that Bambi is based on because that is currently in the public domain. Oh, okay. So it's a okay. Bambi Bambi horror movie and that's hopefully going to come out next year but there's a lot of work left to do so I don't want to make any promises so you do. <laughs> but we're working on it uh, and that was a ton of fun and very um, different than documentary filmmaking because mm -hmm. we're, you know, measuring fake blood by the gallon and there's no fake blood in documentaries almost ever never it's oh it's real blood it's a documentary and let well in some really terrible documentaries they do reenactments hey i uh, love reenactments do you but I, I like calling attention to how terrible they are oh okay because yeah. i yeah i've seen some i mean there's good reenactments and there's bad reenactments whoo anyway yeah we did all our reenactments in the last blockbuster are either me with popsicle stick puppets reenacting a scene right uh or one with actual puppets because i knew a guy who had some puppets but <laughs> there's no actors trying to reenact a thing that happened yeah those are fun i guess i didn't even think of those as reenactments but i i suppose they are yeah i had a lot of fun a lot of fun with those are we are we paused uh, I'm uh, my brain is paused. Fair I, enough. I have a, I actually do have some questions from the wife. Oh, great! And myself, some questions I wrote down to make sure that <laughs> uh, I still got it. Oh, like wow! I've asked most of these. Great. Oh yeah, this is a good this is a good thing to know because um, I really like the the filmmaking aspect of anything. Mm -hmm. Do you? How many people are? Um, are on, do you have a team that you use all the time now that you've made? You're on your third really big one. You're on, what, your fifth uh, documentary? I am currently working uh, on my fifth documentary yeah. and first narrative feature at the same time. So movies wow. five and six wow. are being shot right now while we're out pitching movies seven, eight, and nine. <laughs> <laughs> trying to get money. But yeah, uh, you do... You meet people, you work with people along the way, and the ones you really like, you work with again and again. And so, since most of what I shoot can't be done in Eugene, Oregon, because Kevin Smith's not coming to you, 
He's not. Uh, he Mike, would love Mike it here. Tyson is not coming to you. You know, <laughs> these are people you have to fly to meet. So I have people I like working with in LA and people in New York and people in Texas and people in St. Louis that I like working with. So you build that up over the years. But for the most part, we never have budgets to pay. It's usually just me and whoever I can afford or whoever's mm-hmm. working on the movie with me. So I'll have people come in to work on a documentary. My, my friend Ralph is producing the Lost Doc with me. And I brought him in because he's well-connected in the Lost community. He's a podcaster. He's good at interviews and he's very organized. And he's a huge Lost fan like I am. So he gets the big picture of the story, the story of the fan base. He's one of these people. He had a Lost podcast at the time. Uh, but he'd never done anything in film before. So I bring him in. And we're working on this together. We're breaking the story down, writing that outline, doing all these things. And he's booking interviews and doing the things a producer does, booking us a, an Airbnb or a, you know, finding a sound person in this town that we don't know anybody in. Uh, but I also sort of <laughs> I train people. Like he knows how to set up the microphones now and he knows how to set up the lights. And he's mm-hmm. figured out if I set up the camera for him, he's panning with the talent and hitting record and stuff. So I, I sort of just train whoever's around me <laughs> okay. to get the job done when I can't bring in people. But yeah, you work with a lot of the same people when you can. The problem is always budget. Like I can't afford to pay people what they're worth. There's people I would love to work with every time. Mm-hmm. But if they have another job that has money, they have to do that other job. Right. Because everyone has bills. And, and a lot of times we make these documentaries with no money uh, no outside money coming in and it's a gamble and I'm fine gambling on myself. I'll say, yes, I'm going to oh, work okay. two years sure. on this. And if it makes, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, great. I paid myself back for the two years of work I did, but there's a chance it only makes $5,000. And then I've made $2,500 a year for two years. And that's all I have to show for it. And that's, that's not anecdotal. That has happened to me, both sides of that. Right. Uh-huh. So, I never, I try not to do the math and figure out what I make per hour because there are laws and it's nowhere near minimum wage, but I can't ask other people to take that leap with me. I have to pay them at least something, at least, you know, you're coming to work on this thing. And if it makes I I, I try not to tell people I will only pay you if it makes money because they know how indie film works and they're not going to get paid. Uh, so it's a tricky situation to where sometimes if it's blockbuster or lost or ska, and there's people that love these things, you can get some volunteer help. Like somebody will help you mix the audio for your ska documentary because they played in a ska band and they really want it to sound good. Oh yeah. Okay. And so instead of paying them the six, $7,000 it should have cost, you give them 500 bucks and their name in the credits and they come to the premiere and everybody's happy. And that's like the indie filmmaking of we love this thing. So we'll work for free or discounted, whatever. And that happens. You know, a lot of people love lost and they're like, I, can I do visual effects for you? And I'm like, I don't know how, but if you make me a CGI airplane, I'll use it. You know, that kind of thing uh-huh. mm-hmm. that happens. But for the most part, you work with whoever's available and whoever you can afford 
And the problem is I make movies. I've been doing it long enough now where the people I started with that I could afford, you know, a few hundred bucks here and there, got better and better jobs. And now I I can't afford them. The people that worked with me on my first couple of movies, I can no longer afford unless it's like a -a Build-A-Bear situation where somebody else is paying the bill. So was that too long of an answer for do you have people there, to work with <laughs> <laughs> no not at all that's a i i like that answer because it said a lot about film independent filmmaking which i i think most people don't quite get right you know they they don't understand that a really successful documentary is not a big money maker i mean a fairly successful there independent are. film maybe doesn't make a lot of money it, it just depends it depends yeah but if you could if you had the budget to hire whatever position you wanted, like which one would you replace first? Uh, um, producer, editor, <laughs> sound guy? You know, is there is there a certain a certain part of it that, man, if I could just hire someone every time, it would be so much easier? Or does it really just, is it all, always fun? Or It's different. I mean, so on set, filming like an interview for a documentary, it's just faster to have more people. Like I can... Right. set up a microphone, right. I can set up a light, I can set up a camera. And if I have to do all of that, it takes an hour to set up. But if I have four or five people there who know how to do it, it takes 10 minutes to set up. So it really, it's a trade-off of what's more important. Also, sometimes you don't have an hour to set up. In these celebrity interviews, they say, you know, you can have Kevin Smith from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m., including setup. So, you know, and that that's not what happened with Kevin, but it happens with some people where then then you do bring in the people. Mm-hmm. You say, okay, well, right. I need four people to set all these things up because we don't have any time. Um, my favorite thing to not do on a doc is edit. I only got to work with a real editor one time and it was on Blockbuster and it was because we had a production company swoop in and say they were going to pay for the whole thing and they brought in an editor for us. And then they disappeared and never paid for anything, and we were on the hook to pay for it. Oh, no. But that's a different... I mean, that happens all the time in, in Hollywood. But I'm glad that happened because we would never have worked with an editor, an expensive editor, had they not overpromised. And what I learned from that is that the editor makes the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when I edit my own stuff, there's so many things that I don't see or that I wouldn't have done that end up being the better thing. And it's because they're looking at it with fresh eyes and they're still following that outline that you wrote, but you know, a good editor is, is the best thing to happen to a documentary. And so if I could not edit any of my movies going forward, I would in the doc world. I love editing narrative stuff, but it's like such a huge expense. Cause the problem is I'm at a certain level where the people I can afford to do the jobs for me aren't as good as I am at those jobs. Because I've done them, you know, I've been an editor for 20 years, something like that. So to find an editor who's better than me is going to cost me a lot of money. Oh, right. And we never have a lot of money. Like the cheap editors are like at my level or, or worse. And so it's not a justifiable expense. The same with, you know, a cinematographer. Like if I can afford a great camera guy, that's awesome, but I'm a pretty good camera guy mm-hmm. and I'm free. So <laughs> that's the trade-off <laughs> is like, same with the sound. Like 
it'd be great to have a, a sound guy on every shoot that's just doing the sound. But I've also recorded enough audio in my day to know how to push the buttons and how to do the thing and set up the mic and I'm free. I got to tell you something, speaking of sound, you posted in uh, Lane County Filmmakers, I think it was, about, uh, uh, oh, a hint for the people making short films last <laughs> weekend. Yes. And uh, for me, being a sound person, I and I that was a great hint. I hope people listen to that. So many people don't. Like, you can watch some films with the sound off and see, like, how bad they look. Mm -hmm. And you turn the sound back on. And it's like, oh my gosh, yeah, this is amazing. <laughs> I said that, I put those yeah, hints out. It's really good. Because good I'm I'm one of the judges. So, spoiler alert. Oh no! I, I have to watch all the films and I have to, <laughs> to judge them on many criteria. One of them is sound. Uh -huh. But uh, part of that was selfish. Like if I tell them all to prioritize sound, maybe I won't have to watch any that have really bad sound because that is what kills... It's the first thing that gives away a low budget or an indie, like a low quality movie. If it sounds bad, it's so hard to watch. Uh, the flip side of that is if it sounds great and nothing's in focus and it's underexposed and whatever, it can still be good. It's like, uh, was it El Mariachi that was the first Rodriguez film? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, when you watch that film, when I watch it, it's mm -hmm. like, this is, film is not good. Mm -hmm. The million dollars they put into it in post, which mm -hmm. is what the studio did when they bought it. They yeah. put a million dollars into edit and sound and, mm -hmm. and well, promotion. Yeah. But into a $7,000 film. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it was like, that's what fixed it. You know, yeah. they, they went in and they color corrected better. They, they, I'm sure they really pumped up the soundtrack yeah. uh, with his help because he's an amazing uh, yeah. filmmaker. But yeah, if, <laughs> if you mute that film, not a great movie. But, you right. know, it, no, that's, sound it's is, kind of an example. It's, is the it's whole huge. thing. Yeah. Um, I had an amazing, I did one of those short films. Well, I was on one of those short films and we had an this amazing last weekend? sound man. Yeah. Oh man! I, I hope I hope yours it. wins. It's Nick's. Oh okay. Nick's film. Well, then I already hope it wins. And he did sound, so it's probably pretty good. Probably. Probably. I hope so because he did yeah. sound on our feature. Yeah. So. He's pretty good. No, at I'm it. looking forward to. I'm not going to watch them ahead of the screening. I want to watch them all in the theater with an audience first. Oh okay. And then I have the links. I can rewatch them and do my scores. Uh huh. But I'm excited to go uh, on Sunday and watch them in a theater with a bunch of people because that's how movies are supposed to be watched. It's so fun to see him in a theater. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about a local film festival, by the way. I should explain. <laughs> we have a 72-hour film festival that I've... I think this is my fifth one. Most of them have been with Nick. I've done, oh, I think cool. I've won one. Yeah. So, I mean, when he gets in touch with his crew, we just kind of show what up. What do you do as a crew? Oh, I'm an actor. Oh, you're an actor. Great. I am an so actor. I'll recognize the I'm not, one that you're in. Yeah, you should. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sitting there for a lot of it. Actually, Great. I have no idea. I may not be in it. You know right, how you that goes. Right, you haven't seen the cut. I may not be yeah. in it. Yeah, I but, love yeah. the 72-hour films. And I, when I knew I was going to be too busy this year, because I landed back in town like the day before it started from a film shoot oh, you know, wow. in New York or something. Uh -huh. I've got two features I'm working on. I'm just like, oh my God. not going to have time to do it. So when right. I realized I wasn't going to have time to do it, I reached out and said, hey, can I be a judge? You know, I know a thing or two about films. Yeah. <laughs> and they let me because I had I'd done a couple of the Eugene ones and I won. That's the other reason. I want to retire while I'm ahead. Like I'm undefeated. Oh, ooh. So I've done two, but both Very of them won nice. the main, you know, the jury award or whatever. So 
if I don't make any more, then my track record is flawless. If. <laughs> <laughs> but if I make another one, I could lose. Well, also, I appreciate you judging because I think that's hard. I think that's a. It is. It is. Yeah. I've done it before. I've been like a screener for film festivals where you have to watch 100 short films and, mm-hmm. you know, pick the top 10 or something like that. It's not always great because they're not always great. They're not always great. I mean, I, I'll be honest. It's it's sometimes hard to go watch the f- films. I always, you know, want to see mine on the big screen, and several of them blow me away. Yeah, several of them blow me away, and many of them don't. Right. And it, <laughs> yeah, there was one year. I think they had forty, forty one of them or something. I think that was one of the years. Yeah, that and I it's went. like, yeah, that's too many. It's. It was too much. That's too much. And, and like 20 and again, of them were not like, very good. There was five or, yeah, there I was five or six standouts that, again, there was an animated one. There was one with puppets. There was one with army men, I think. I oh, think yeah. that was the year. Yeah, yeah that's the year and we the, won. Yeah, stop mode. Oh, that's the year <laughs> yeah. you won. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I know a lot of those guys, uh, puppet guy's a good friend of mine. But yeah, it's hard to, first of all, it's hard to do. It's hard to make a film at all without a deadline. Yeah. And then it's hard harder still to make a film in three days and harder still to make a film in Eugene, especially when, you know, you look at the talent pool here, no offense, it's a great town, it's a college town, it's artsy, but there's 41 films made that year. There are not 41 qualified sound recording people in this town or 41 brilliant cinematographers. Right. So... You're a little bit screwed because everybody's doing it the and same that, weekend. Yeah. And you're like, well, there's like five really good sound people. So five teams are going to have good sound. The other 35 are going to use whoever they can get. And that's a bummer because if you spread those 72-hour films out over the year, those same five people could work on all of them and they'd all sound great. Well, I, I always wondered what the, uh, what the what, what is the word? With the advantages to doing those festivals, I mean, you've—I guess they're—they're they're a lot of fun. But I'm—I'm—I'm I'm not sure what it teaches people other than to rush through your project. I'm not sure how good that is. Sometimes um, I'm always amazed. Well, one, I, it always cracks me up that there are some really good actors in town, and they'll be in five of them. Yes, and, and, and I'm like, and like, how did they stagger yeah, these? Shooting how did times? they get that done? Because yeah. Cause, yeah um, I love working with Nick because I show up for four and a half, five hours as a for as a talent, right? And he's done even if you know I've done pretty much been an extra before. Same sure. thing. So easy. Um, it's always torture because he he's always got something. He's always in a, no. a, a barn or something. But this year was, but also the amount of t- um, he, some crews like his crew was a professional film crew. Right. I was like, whoa, yeah. Wow. And then you put that up against. There's always. You know, a team of high school kids and a, a team mm-hmm. of uh, just hobbyists or people who have never made a film before. That's my favorite is yeah. people who uh, you ask if there's a benefit to the 72 hour format. Uh, there's pluses and minuses, right? Because if you've never made a film before and that's how you do it, it's not a good representation of what filmmaking is like. And then you're maybe burnt out. You never make another one because it was too hard or... You want every film to be that fast-paced, and you you've learned nothing. But <laughs> <laughs> that that's it. That's kind of my point. It's like, yeah, yeah if you're a high schooler and you're trying to make a seventy-two-hour film, uh, what's the lesson there? Um, I mean, you do learn how to. You might you might learn how to write a script really fast and mm-hmm. get a story done really fast. But uh, if yeah. you, it could be the opposite. You could be like, man, this is 
I've this I've loved it. I've most of my short films have been done for those contests because it gives you a deadline. Mm-hmm. And I'm you know, like I said, I can hyper focus for a very short amount of time on right. anything. So to me, somebody coming in and saying it's Thursday night, you got to have a finished film on Sunday night. Here are the parameters. That excites me as a filmmaker. I'm so excited to do that because I can you could do anything for three days. Like you could pinch <laughs> yeah. your thumb in a door jam for three days. It's You know it's going to end. So no matter how difficult or how grueling it is, you know, come Sunday evening, your film is done. Mm-hmm. Whether it's good or bad or even finished, there's an eight o'clock Sunday, it's done. Whether you want it to be done or not. Um, and for some people, and a lot of creatives are also deadline driven like that, it's the only way they're going to make a short film that year. Or it's right, the only thing right. that's going to motivate somebody to do art. And I think that's the benefit is that it's finite and you're, you're able, you know, also to ask your friends to help you. And maybe that's where you meet the best camera operator you've ever met or the person who does lighting better than you've ever seen or the actor that you really want to put in your next thing. Because most people will say yes if they're free that day. Because most people aren't working for 72 hours. They're working for four hours like you did. Yeah. You say, come on, yeah. hold a boom pole for three hours. We're shooting this thing. Meanwhile, that person is writing for nine hours and editing for 14 hours and color grading and sound mixing. But I do think you meet a lot of cool people. You figure out maybe which job you like doing because you have to do too many of the jobs. And having a deadline makes people make art that ordinarily might not have made art that weekend. And that's, I think the benefit. Yeah. Though, and those are great. Those are great benefits. I I'm just into, uh, yes, those are definitely good benefits. And I've, I mean, I have met some great people through that. It was a reunion. We hadn't done it for three years. Yeah. That's what Nick and was so saying. He was getting to tell me he was going to yeah, do it. it and he's like, we like, get the whole gang wow, back together. Yeah, it was so cool. Yeah. That was fun, and that's why it didn't matter what the size of my part, because I got to hang out with people I hadn't seen for years. And Yeah, and the flip side, yeah. the downside is maybe your film isn't very good, or maybe it was really hard to do, or mm-hmm. you lost a whole weekend. You didn't get to hang out with your dog as much as you wanted to. That's not that bad of a downside. <laughs> yeah, it's really like, not. It, it's really not. And at the end, like, you have a film that is maybe great, or is maybe terrible, but if it's bad you get the caveat of being like well we only had three days and everybody understands and well, if it's good everybody's so impressed true because yeah. you only had three days so the, those are really good points there's no like there's no risk of people being judging you on your right thing you made in three days god you would no hope money. not you would hope not yeah except me it's my job to actually judge you but well yeah and people do <laughs> judge you <laughs> People judge uh, as an actor. It doesn't matter how long it took. People, That's true. People judge you or how many takes you got. You know, that was a half a take. I don't care. You were terrible, man. <laughs> that sounds like the editor's fault. <laughs> yeah. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. That's what, and it's part of why I asked you that question because I've seen, I've been in things and seen directors that, uh, independent directors that I think if they reached out, they could get help because there are people in the community they mm-hmm. probably help them and they they just want to like make all those decisions because i've always thought that like you said when some uh, when another editor is looking at your stuff i think that's a huge part of it i mean for me filmmaking is um it's uh you know something you do as a, t- a group 
mm-hmm. um, if if possible. Um, you've made some great films, so I'm not I'm not taking anything away from that. I just mean it. It's a different. It, it sometimes might be advantageous if someone can you know give the editing to someone else and you pick out those shots because also as a director, especially on short films, you're there watching every take. There might be a reason you don't like a take that has nothing to do with right. Your feet were cold, was, or yeah. you know, the refrigerator was beeping, or something. Right, has nothing to something do with weird. which is the best performance. That's true. Yeah, or you were angry at that actor because they, you, they didn't say what you wanted them to say. They improved something, and well, that's not what I wrote, so I'm not using that. But an outside editor would be like, well, that's better. So I will use that. I, I, yeah, Where, exactly. Yeah, but you, that looks you can better. Get too sounds close better. To maybe it. you should use that. Yeah, I mean, I think the worst part is I I tend to shoot my own stuff. I'm the cinematographer as well. Mm -hmm. And then I'll sometimes, not often, but I'll pick a take because it looks the coolest. Right. And the actors don't love that. They're like, but I made a weird face. And in the other take, I didn't. I'm like, yeah, but this one was a little bit more in focus. And the camera move was just so. (laughs) (laughs) Like, yeah, I don't know. Well, there's uh, oftentimes I will see in a movie that like something slightly out of focus and that's probably why it's the better performance it's the better performance yeah. they liked that yeah there's a couple yeah. shots in Oppenheimer that are not perfectly in focus and I you know you notice stuff like that when you're a filmmaker especially when they spend a billion dollars on the movie and, yeah right yeah there's yeah. part of me is like they couldn't afford another take or they don't have a way to use the sound from that take and the picture from a different take that's more in focus but it's not always like like you said it could be that was the performance or it could be they stole that shot by punching in on a wider shot and that's why it's out of focus oh right cuz it's actually a quarter of the frame yeah that's and and sometimes even on a huge budget though it's like no they don't have another one that like that set's gone right it's history right. we can't go, we can't right. get you that you think again. you got it on the day and they're shooting yeah. on film so you don't know how in focus it was until you get that processed that's right. a whole different that's know, a whole different world and that's why it's so expensive and that's why yeah. you can't go back and do it again and in the digital world you can watch it right away right after and go oh you know what that wasn't perfectly in focus let's do it again and I used to I there's kind of a trend it seems like for that film is coming back uh, for certain films for mm-hmm. an artistic reasons basically mm-hmm. um, and I'm a little, I resist that a little bit because I'm like, with all the editing tools you have, do you really need to shoot film and spend that kind of money and spend that? But then I've seen a couple of films uh, like Oppenheimer and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I was like, okay, I can tell. That's yeah. film. That's, you know. It is getting harder and harder to tell, but you can tell. <laughs> I, I would wager that there are instances where you couldn't tell. Yeah. You know, if I showed you two movies and said which one of these, and neither one of them is a Tarantino or an Oppenheimer, they're just two indie films, you know, same quality of lighting, same quality of sound, and like which one of these was shot on film, you might not know because the technology to emulate film has gotten so good um, and the people using film that aren't at the top of their game are not that good at using film for what it's good for. You know, there's only a handful of DPs left in Hollywood that are good at shooting on film. Right. Other people right. are doing it because it's cool or it's retro or what you know, whatever. But like, if you're not going to take full advantage of film, why shoot on film? And no one can afford it. It's it's a little bit to me. It's a little bit of like a look how cool we are, look how much money we have. 
Like when Tarantino says he's only going to shoot on film, no one says no to him. That's but if true. I said and, it. <laughs> and with most of his films, I was like, who cares? But in that particular film, I thought, no, it well, looks great. that looks, that's kind of cool because he yeah, used. It always looks like, great and it's yeah. the right choice. Yeah, but, but you're right. It's, it's a big part of it. Is, but it maybe yeah. looks 10% better. To us. And it costs film 30 times more money. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. like a diminishing returns there on, on your budget of like. How much more did it cost? How much better did it really look? It's one of the things I find very exciting now about filmmaking that I still haven't seen is that on a $7,000 budget like El Mariachi, you could make a really good film now with the tools that are available. Mm -hmm. You could make an incredible film um, as long as you weren't, you know, having to, as long as you weren't hiring all union people. Right. Um, Which you can't hire right now because they're on strike. You can't do that anyway, right? But uh, I just, I'm still kind of waiting for that to come out. um, The no budget. The no budget, somebody, somebody, a filmmaker like, um, you know, Spielberg was in the beginning or Lucas or any Mm -hmm. of these people who started with their kids in their backyard uh, or as kids in their backyard. Yeah. I'm still kind of waiting for that to come out where, yeah, we shot this on an iPhone and we sold yeah. it to Miramax or whatever. That, it, it, it's a catch-22 it a little bit. It is definitely yeah. possible. I think you look back at the Robert Rodriguez, Kevin Smith model of like maxing out your credit cards and making a film mm-hmm. and then Miramax buys it or whoever and it blows up and it makes millions of dollars. That happened back then Partly, I think, because it was so damn hard to make a movie and nobody was doing it. And the fact that Robert Rodriguez could figure out how to make a movie for $7,000, like technically, I'm not talking about writing the script. I'm not talking about getting the right actors. I'm saying he figured out a way, if I use this sound recorder and I buy this film stock, he was buying the ends of the film um, like that they trim off when the studios don't need them. So he would only get you know, 20 seconds on this role and a minute on this role because he was, it was cheaper. And so that skill set that he had to be able to actually even make a film at all for $7,000 was so rare that, you know, it didn't have to be the most amazing film. It's a good film, but like people were so impressed and like, yeah, we'll buy that. It's cost nothing. Great. Oh, put a million dollars into it. That was nothing at the time for a film market it and it makes all its money back that's so great and the same thing happened with kevin smith and a lot of other people of that era now it's so easy to make a film and it's still hard to make a good film but it's so easy that everyone can make a film you the camera on this phone that i'm sitting next to is so much better than what anybody had in the 80s and 90s short of you know a 35 millimeter film camera right right Anybody can make a film. And so the problem becomes, I, I would wager that last year, 20,000 films were made. A thousand of which at least were better than El Mariachi. But yeah. because 20,000 films were made, no one is going to find those thousand. No one's going to pick them up. And also the industry has changed. And if it's not a superhero movie or a Star Wars movie... No one's spending the money and getting that money back in the theatrical world. And home video is dead. So they all just dump out onto streaming onto one of these many platforms and you can't find them. And so I think people are making 
those films you talk about, The Diamond in the Rough, the amazing $7,000 or $1,000 film because technology is so cheap now, but there's so many damn films that they're impossible to find and the system, the Hollywood system is not geared the way it used to be to find one of those and elevate it because they're too busy trying to figure out if they can make two more Matrix movies next year. <laughs> oh God, I hope not. Uh, the, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. It's when I, they had a, um, they had a movie for a phone that they were making films with and, and saying how this is just the iPhone. And it was like the, the shots were amazing. Yeah. And then I thought to myself, yeah, but you're using a million dollar director. Mm-hmm. You're using a cinematographer. Yeah, your lighting <laughs> set up. You paid over a million for this. Sometimes you I look at those setups good. too. <laughs> you look at, because um, there's a couple, I forget, um, the name of the guy, he shoots movies on iPhones now, but he used to make films, Linkletter? I don't remember. But somebody's doing iPhone movies. Mm-hmm. And then you see the behind-the-scenes photo, and it's an iPhone, but it's rigged out with this lens and this battery pack and this follow focus and this gimbal and like all this, the highest-end sound gear. And it's barely an iPhone anymore. It's, At right. that point, you're spending it, all the money yeah, to looks, promote the iPhone. Exactly. It looks like... What you would buy for uh, a decent SLR camera, right. and plus their lighting is yeah. thousands of dollars. And it's all with kitted out, yeah, and you're not all, just yeah. pulling out your phone and shooting a movie, Yeah, but that's a that's fun true. narrative, so they push the narrative. Yeah. But that's not to say and, you couldn't just shoot a movie on your iPhone and have mm-hmm. it be good. You could. Yeah, I think it's possible. People do it. I think, I think one day, one day it'll happen. Yeah. <sighs> Well, listen, I think I should probably... Did I get to everything? I don't know. Oh, oh, almost. One thing I have to do after... We're going to talk about all the really good stuff. um, As soon as we cut. As soon as we cut. Then we'll get into the the good stuff. Sounds good. (laughs) Keep listening, even after this turns off. And let me say, (laughs) this has been... Were you still talking? This is Joel Albrecht in the studio today. I've had Taylor Morden... Watch his films. They're really good. The last blockbuster, um, soon to be out. Is, is the um, the bear Build a Bear out? Build a Bear's yeah. out. Build-A-Bear's yeah, out? unstuffed. Okay. A Build a Bear story uh, is available to rent anywhere you rent movies. So iTunes, Amazon, Vudu, places like that. Fandango, I think. So wherever you rent movies, it's available. Awesome. Um, it's good. It's about teddy bears. It's got Mike Tyson in it. If you like those things, you'll like it. You and he, maybe if you don't like those things, you'll still like it. I mean, I thought it was okay. If you don't like don't teddy like bears, I don't. Teddy bears? Who are you? <laughs> as long as it's not clowns. All right. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> as I always say, be good to each other and be good to yourself. We'll uh, talk to you soon. Where's that button?